When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, it's Ryan, your host of the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. This is a podcast where I sit down with some amazing people from all over the world who have a story to share, experiences we can learn from, and knowledge in areas that we can apply to our lives to help make us happier and overall just better people. Each episode has a different topic with information in all different areas, but each aimed at helping you understand this journey we call life just a little better and from a different perspective. We'll touch on everything from nutrition, mindset, mental health, relationships, to travel and adventure, and much, much more. And I'll even experiment with some advice and information along the way to see how it affects me along my own pursuit of happiness. And don't forget, if you love this episode or any other episode, please subscribe and leave a review so that way I can keep bringing you so many more amazing guests and great content. This is a conversation I wish I had just over a year ago before I built and bought my new home. I sat down with Raleigh realtor Tiffany Alexi. She's the CEO and founder of her own firm here in the Raleigh area. So basically, she's pretty badass when it comes to the real estate market, and obviously she's really tapped in with what's going on and why the market is so incredibly hot right now. I've had so many conversations recently with people who are trying to buy homes that need to put down 30, 40, 50,000, or even more dollars over asking price just to purchase a house. It's getting crazy out there. So we talked a lot about why the market is so hot right now and if she sees it leveling off anytime in the near future or even coming to a crash. Another reason I wanted to sit down with Tiffany was to go over behind the scenes the process of buying a house from her perspective. She gives such great information this entire podcast from start to finish. I will say obviously she's a realtor here in North Carolina So our rules, laws, regulations don't necessarily apply to everywhere, but I will say a majority of what she says and the advice she gives will apply to you no matter what state you're in. The information she gives is incredible. It's very deep. We literally start from square one when talking about how to find the proper agent, even using Zillow and Redfin if those are good or bad and how that works. She gives some amazing advice for when you actually are doing the walkthrough of what to look for, what actually matters, and what can be fixed, and what's just cosmetic. If you've purchased the house before, you realize quickly the fees start adding up. I ask her if there's anything you can kind of skip out on, can you save your money in specific areas? And if you haven't purchased a house before, this is such valuable information. I can't stress that enough. Also, being in the Raleigh area, Apple actually just made an announcement that they're building a pretty big campus no more than five to 10 minutes from my own house. So I wanted to ask her how it affects the value of a home when a company does that, when they build and expand somewhat near your neighborhood, how that affects the value of your home. Overall, I'm pretty happy that Apple's coming to the area, and so are many other people, but I'm actually curious to see how it affects the traffic in this area as well. 
These are all things that you have to consider when purchasing a home, whether to live in or to rent, and these are things that we go over in this podcast. As you're about to find out, I'm not kidding when I say we really go over the small details every step of the way and what to look into, what to look for, what the biggest deal breakers are. This is one of those podcasts that I feel like you're going to bookmark and you're going to come back to and listen to when you're ready to purchase a home or send this to family and friends when they're looking to purchase a home. Honestly, this is just information that I feel like just about everybody should have. So without further ado, here's Tiffany Alexi. So Tiffany, how are things going for you? They're good. Um, I'm just trying to stay afloat. <laughs> and they, they good or great, honestly. Are they good or great because the market well, is yeah, killing. I can't complain. <laughs> yeah, that is so awesome. Um yeah, when I when I um wanted to kind of dive deeper into the whole housing market and buying houses, uh, you were one of the first people I thought of. Um maybe it's just because you're flaunting your new Tesla. <laughs> 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 I don't know. Those cars are still pretty cool, but um, yeah, there's just so much going on with the market and buying homes. Like I know a lot of people um, have been saying like, even like in my work meetings and whatnot, like you've seen the housing market. It's almost like talking about the weather anymore. And it's not about the weather. Now it's about the housing market. Yeah. How people are just going crazy and putting in like crazy amounts of money, like over like asking price and, um, but yes, yeah, so I wanted to talk to an expert about this rather than just <laughs> assume anything or read something that you don't know if it's true or not. So uh, thanks again for joining the podcast. You're going to sh- shed some light on this and we're going to go through the whole buying process of buying a house too, which I did last year. So I probably could have used this a year ago, but <laughs> you know, it's something that people can listen to, um, for the first time and, or come back and listen to again when, you know, they're going through the process. So, um, you know, first and foremost, um, you are here in this area. Are you in, is it Apex? So my office is in Cary, but I live in Raleigh. Okay. Well, so for the people who don't know, I'm also in the Raleigh Durham area and this area is booming. Um, is, would you say this is like one of the the top areas in the country right now, as far as the markets? Yeah. yeah, we we've been making, you know, top three, top five lists as far as like hottest housing markets. Um, really? I keep hearing us getting compared to Austin and maybe that's because of Apple. Um, but yeah, it's we've been like a sister city to Austin for a while. Yeah, that's what I hear. A lot of people think of when they move from what I hear, like I'm going to go to Raleigh or I'm going to go to Austin. And a lot of it's like with the tech hubs and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah so you just said Apple. Um We'll touch on that momentarily. I want to talk to you about that as far as Apple coming to the area. Um, but first and foremost, I don't want to get too far into this without introducing yourself. So please <laughs> introduce yourself and let's talk about you and your background for a little bit. Okay. Um, well, my name is Tiffany Alexi. I kind of got started in real estate back in 2011. Um, I was actually a senior in college and my mom at the time kind of planted the idea of me like per- potentially purchasing a house instead of renting um, during grad school. And so I was just randomly like browsing Craigslist and I found a four bedroom condo. Um, at the time it was listed for 112,000 near NC State where I went to grad school. So I was like, okay, you know, I'll check this place out. Um, my plan was to, to buy it and then live in one room and rent out the other three. 
So I ended up doing that. I bought it, got it under contract and closed for like 103,000. Um, and that was back in 2011 when the market wasn't so good. Mm. And so you had a lot more negotiating power as a buyer. So I moved in, I lived in one room and I rented out the other three rooms to friends um, and a couple of people I found on Craigslist. And, you know, the rent that came in, it covered my mortgage, it covered my HOA, um, it covered taxes. So I was essentially living for free in my own house. Um, and I made like 150 bucks on top of that because nice. um, we split utilities four ways and everything. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a couple of years, just not knowing if I was going to continue with real estate, I was also in grad school. So I was just trying to figure out like career potential. Um, and I ended up getting my real estate license a couple years after that. Um, and it was just one of those things where I wanted to invest more and I knew that long-term I just wanted to buy more and more property. So I was like, okay, I'll get my real estate license. I'll save myself the commission. I'll learn more about the process and that's it. I never envisioned being a realtor. In fact, I remember thinking during class, like, oh, this is what like realtors have to do. So I'm not going to pay attention to this part because I'm never going to be a realtor. Mm. Um, so I got my license, kind of sat around um, on it, you know, for a couple of years. And I had gra- a friend from grad school who then reached out to me. They're like, hey, you're involved in real estate. Can you help me buy a house? Like I want to buy a house. And so at the time I didn't have a job lined up and I was just kind of trying to figure things out. Um, so I said, sure, you know, I've done it before. I know what to do. I'll make commission and I'll pay some bills. And so I did that a couple of times. I was like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Hmm. Um, so I was like, I'll just sell some houses until I find like a big girl job. And it just kept snowballing from there. And I never ended up finding a big girl job. So I started uh, my first full-time year in real estate was 2016. And I started my firm in 2017. And so since then, it's just been growing rapidly. Um, I have seven agents on the team now. And I have a a salaried employee. Um, She's my broker in charge. So she manages the team for me. Awesome. Super cool. I'm just sitting here listening to the story. And I'm wondering if you weren't in Raleigh, do you think you would have became a realtor? Like, do you feel like, you know, being a player in a market that is kind of generous kind of helped you a little bit? Um, It definitely made the entry level a little bit easier, especially back in 2011 when, you know, prices were depressed. Um, I I don't know the answer to that question. I think I would, because I think I, you know, I, I have that passion for real estate. So I feel like regardless of where I was, I would be interested in it. Okay. I'm going to give you a random curveball question that just came to my mind. Okay. Uh, HGTV, what's your favorite show on HGTV and your least favorite show on HGTV? So I don't actually watch much TV. Okay. Um, I don't really Too busy. HGTV. <laughs> um, I don't have cable, first of all. And then second of all, when I'm like trying to relax and stuff, I don't want to watch HGTV because it just reminds me of my job. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah, especially like House Hunters. I've seen a couple episodes of that. Mm-hmm. Um, House Hunters International is pretty cool because you get to see like all the places, but they're not, the shows are not realistic in any capacity. So. Yeah, I was hoping you might have some insight on that just to kind of shed some light. It reminds me of when I was working up at ESPN over a decade ago, I would be working on a the sports center NFL live all these shows and I get home and the last thing I want to do is put on ESPN anymore. Like I would put on like 
Nick at night or something like that and go to bed. Yeah, yeah I exactly. Watch it anymore. Yeah, no more. Yeah, yeah. I watch like super trashy TV um, just <laughs> to like get my mind off of work. Yeah. <laughs> no, I hear you on that. And yeah. Um, yeah, so I used to work with somebody uh, who lives down here that um, actually they they had bought a house and maybe three or four months later, this is a true story. Um, David, the realtor, it was it's David and Hillary, the realtor on the show, um, love oh, it or yeah. list it. Mm-hmm. knocked on their door and they said, can we film your house as one of the options that they can buy? And it was never for sale. They just moved yeah. in. They just yeah. bought it. It's like, this is BS. So ever since then, I'm like, I ain't watching this no more. Yeah. <laughs> and they're yeah, down here in the Raleigh area. Yeah. 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 And it, it makes the process look super, super easy. You know, you're like, you find a house, you narrow it down and then you buy it all within like a 30 minute you know, little TV show when in reality, the process is much longer than that. Yeah. Much, much longer. Um, so that's actually one of my first questions to you is okay. So let's kind of get into this. So for somebody who's looking to purchase a home, um, about how far in advance would you recommend them to actually start studying and browsing and perhaps going to visit some properties? So the first thing they need to do is get pre-approved by a lender. Um, and that's typically good for about 90 days. Technically, there's like an expiration where that lender has to repull credit as long as nothing in, you know, that your finances have changed. Like if you haven't gotten a new job, you haven't gotten, you know, a new loan of any sort, then, you know, it's just a repull of credit and issuing a new letter with a new date. Mm -hmm. Um, But typically those are good for 90 days. And the closing process, once you're under contract on a home, it's about 30 to 45 days. So in all reality, I would say, you know, you want to start looking probably four to five months out from when you need to move. And in this market, it wouldn't be bad to start looking a little bit longer than that. So maybe when you're six or seven months out, just because you're going to have to put in most likely more than one offer before you actually get a house. Mm. Unless you're just rolling in dough, I guess, right? (laughs) Yeah, unless you just kill it, you know, knock it out of the park on the first one. Um, but I don't see that happening very often. So for somebody who's looking to buy a house now and they're like, Hey, listen, this property is really nice. You know, I have a decent job, but there's no way this house is worth that much. Um, right. you know, what do you, what do you tell people like that? Cause there's gotta be so many people and families that are looking to stop renting, buy a house, but it's like, this is ridiculous. I can't, I can't pay for that. Like, what do you, what do you tell people? Yeah. I mean, pretty much in this market, you have to pay regardless of appraisal to have a chance of getting the house. Hmm. So, you know, there's, there's different um, addendums that I have access to. So now on every offer, I pretty much always include the appraisal addendum. And it basically says my buyer is willing to pay the contract price, regardless of what this house appraises for. Wow. So they're having to cover the difference. And at that point, you know, they're relying on me to pull comps and look at, okay, what do I think this will appraise for? And they're definitely not keeping up, especially because buyers now are going 30, 40, 50,000 over asking. The appraisals are not keeping up. So they're just expecting to just bring the extra to closing. So let's talk about that for a second. So just to kind of break down some of the basics. So if I'm buying a house and I get it appraised, um, and it's for a certain amount, but I put in for 50 grand over what happens with the 50 grand over. I literally have to bring that to the table on closing day. Yeah. So the lender is going to be basing the, the loan 
on the appraisal value. So if you're putting 20% down, it's gonna be 20% of that appraisal value plus the additional delta between what it appraised for and then what you're actual what you're actually under contract for. Okay. So you and, literally have to just bring that extra money to closing. And how are appraisals created? I always wondered that because these people just show up and they just start telling you what a house is worth. It's like, who are they? So tell me, like, do you know the process behind that? Yeah. So they're licensed appraisers. You have to have an appraiser's license. Um, they're not realtors. They have a completely different license than I do. And essentially they're going in and they're, they're doing a similar process of what I do of running comps, um, like pulling nearby sales of similar homes. And, but the difference is an appraiser gives an exact value on a home. So they can go in and say, okay, I've appraised this house and it's, it appraises for 451,000. Whereas, you know, me as a real estate agent, I can pull comps, I can give a ballpark, I can give a range of what it might appraise for or what the value is, but I'm not an appraiser, so I don't give exact figures. Mm -hmm. And the lender is basing their loan on the appraisal value. So besides comps, what else are appraisals, appraisers looking at? Like, what are some key factors? I mean, that's really all they should be looking at is close okay. sales. Sometimes um, in markets like this, you know, there's... I have some mixed feelings about it, but sometimes, you know, as a listing agent or as a buyer's agent, you can actually send the appraiser a list of, hey, this is all the, you know, all the upgrades we've done to the house since we bought it. Here's a list of, you know, the offers that we got on the house. If we have 48 or 50 offers, then, you know, it's, I have mixed feelings because it's, it's kind of trying to influence an appraisal, which mm -hmm. shouldn't be happening. Mm -hmm. um, but I see that happening sometimes as well. Full disclosure, I would probably do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure most people would, you know, if you're trying to get your your house to appraise higher, then you're going to do everything possible to try to get that done. Yep. And so, so far, I would probably say my biggest accomplishment is changing the beige color to gray. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't have to paint. It's painted nicely gray. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you just said, did you just say 40 to 50 offers on a house? Is that what you just said? Jeez, yep. and you're shaking your head yes for people listening. That's yes. wow. Okay, so is that because the market market is hot, or is that kind of normal? So it was like that before all the Apple news broke. Um, but Apple coming is just just making it worse. So it really depends on the neighborhood as well. Um, so for example, I had clients that put in an offer on this pristine house in Morrisville. Um, it was gorgeous, you know, everything was very well maintained. It was a newer home. I think it was built 2011 or 2012. Corner lot, big yard, and it had 60 offers on it. So, you know, that there aren't many homes for sale in Morrisville. So everybody who was trying to get into Morrisville, you know, were bidding on that house. Um, so really it depends on the area specifically, but yes, as long as the house is actively listed, you will more than likely have multiple offers on it. So for people listening, Morrisville is, is that the area where Apple is going? That's just right outside of the Raleigh area. Yeah. yeah. Apple's going to Durham technically. Um, I think the land that they acquired is in Durham, mm -hmm. but it's like that Durham RTP Morrisville area. Um, it is competitive. Yeah. Well, what's funny is I live in Durham now. So I bought a house 
a few miles from RTP last year. I actually bought it so I can live closer to work, have a yard and fenced in yard for my dogs. And now I don't go to work because I work from home. Yeah. And then I saw this Apple news break and I'm like, all right, the pro and the con here, the con is traffic is going to blow. Um, the pro is, okay, I think my house value is going to go up. So when I say, hey, my house value is going to go up, like, what am I looking at here? How much is this going to go up? How much it has, has it gone up? Like, do you have any numbers or feedback? Yeah, I mean, I would have to pull comps on it specifically um, because it's going to vary. It's going to vary on how maintained your house is. I, I, I've run into some people who are just thinking like, okay, well, Apple's coming. My house is automatically going to triple in value. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. Like you still have to take care of it. You still have to maintain it. Um, you still, you know, if you want to maximize the value of your home, you have to make upgrades. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, it's not like an automatic like lottery ticket. Right. Um, but it, it really just depends on your home and if it's well taken care of the neighborhood, the location, all of those factors come into play. Okay. And I want to use kind of my house as an example for anybody listening to this anywhere in the country or the world. Like when a company or corporation moves kind of close to where you are, how it can affect the value of your house. So I'm going to throw out a random number that's incorrect for my house, but let's just say I paid 300,000 for it. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple moves in. Am I looking at like, I don't know, 320, 340, 350 higher? Like, do you have any kind of guesstimate? As far as the current value? Um, as, yeah. To- now the, the Apple comes in. I'm just truly curious. Like you said, triple, which seems like extreme, obviously, but right. yeah. um, it was just curious. And I mean, it depends as well because you know, it could be worth X right now because yes, they've announced officially that they've come in, but they haven't actually established mm-hmm. a presence here yet besides acquiring the land. So, you know, in the next two to three years, are they, is it going to increase even more and by how much? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Okay. But have you seen an effect? So Apple announced this maybe what, two or three weeks ago, they're coming into the area. Okay. Have you seen an effect so far immediately yet? Um, as far as home prices, not really, you know, it's still as competitive as it was before, but I have gotten a lot more inquiries on my website, people reaching out, emailing me saying, Hey, I want to buy a house in Raleigh. I've never been there. Don't know my way around. All I want is, you know, to buy something that will appreciate after Apple comes in. Mm-hmm. So we're definitely more and more on the map now with all those, with the Apple news. But, um, as far as, the market, you know, we've been so tight on inventory for so long that it's been competitive, you know, way before all this news came out. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I'm seeing is corporations are buying houses, like corporations or stockholders, like the, the market and stuff like um, Wall Street, they are buying houses with cash and renting them out. Um this is a true story. Is this why kind of the prices are very, uh, you know, high, everything's kind of tight and hard to get? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that that's the only reason why, but it's certainly a contributing factor, but they've been, you know, corporations have been buying properties at at all times, you know, 2008, 2009, all all the time. So it's not just a good market and it's not just our market. They're buying nationwide as well. I saw a statistic that it was like one of five houses in the country or something was like kind of being bought up by like a corporation and then rented out. 
Well, if you include just, you know, private investors, you know, landlords, individuals like you and I who are buying investment property. Yeah, that sounds about right. As far as like big private equity firms, Mm -hmm. I would say that's probably closer to like one in 10. Okay. Yeah. So this is definitely, uh, it is a trend though to look out for. And absolutely. Yeah. So why, why else are the markets so on fire right now? There's just no inventory. So, you know, a balanced market is considered six months of inventory. It means that if you don't list any more houses for sale, the current buyers will absorb the inventory in six months. So they'll buy, um, they'll go through the inventory that's already listed in six Mm -hmm. months. We are at 0.6, which means we have like two weeks of inventory. So if no more houses were listed, they would all get snatched up within two weeks, two or three weeks. Mm. Um, That's just crazy. There's just not enough homes for sale. Now you're, you're talking about our area specifically, correct? Correct. Yeah. Now, is it right that because of COVID that some cities are seeing people leave those areas and they're going more suburban? I've definitely heard that. I've heard, um, especially like the higher cost of living areas where you have a lot of workers, like tech workers that, you know, they don't necessarily need to come into the office or maybe Mm -hmm. it's they're working from home for the next year um, or potentially forever. They're, of course, relocating to lower cost of living areas that have, you know, the same amenities, maybe the same feel of a, like a nicer area, but without the higher costs. Mm -hmm. So with us being, we're like, two hours to the meet to the beach, two hours to the mountain. You know, we've got three really good universities here. Um, good weather. A lot of those factors come into play as far as, you know, where people are looking to move. Yeah, very true. And so I'm going to where I'm from originally upstate New York next week, I'm driving up there and it's like the opposite. People are leaving uh, upstate New York, not all areas, but at least where I'm from, it's, you know, it was more of an eighties, nineties kind of boom town where IBM started and now people are leaving. So it's, it's funny to have kind of both sides of the spectrum as far as like where I'm from, where my family lives, like people are leaving, but where I'm at now, everyone's coming and, you know, yeah. we can't build enough houses fast enough, which is crazy. So it's not everywhere that's booming, but we are definitely in one of the places that are, that's on fire right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you were to start um, a second branch or a second chain, if you will, where would you open that up in the country? Ooh, in the country. Um, that's a good question. I would have to think about that. That wasn't um, on the outline. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have like personal preferences. Um, I don't know. I, I really am partial to the East Coast. Okay. So I would say, you know, either like Florida or New York. Okay. Um, I don't know. I would try to target people because we have a lot of people who do move here from New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just, it makes sense to have, you know, a presence somewhere where people already, they already have that um, path kind of carved out. Okay. And I'm sure there's people probably listening to this right now that are like, okay, they keep talking about the market being on fire, but when can I get in? When's it going to slow down? Do you have any indicators of when the market may slow down at all? I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I, I have no idea. And honestly, it's been a seller's market really ever since I started selling here. So back in 
2015, I, I think I saw my first house in 2015. And I remember it was multiple offers. Um, and, you know, granted people weren't going 50,000 over asking price back then, but it was still very competitive. So it's been competitive since then. Um, and I wish I knew, you know, it's last year I was thinking, okay, now with COVID, you know, everything's locking down. This is it. This is, we're going to have a slowdown in the housing market. Like, mm -hmm. and I, I genuinely believe that I sold a bunch of things. Um, I had some investment properties and I liquidated them quickly. Cause I was like, well, if this is it, you know, I need cash to sit on. Mm -hmm. um, and then it bounced back within a month or two. You know, I think once the panic subsided, yeah. Last year was crazy. Last March, April, May, June, I was, I was working like a dog. Mm. So I, it just shows, you know, I don't know anything as far as forecasting. I'm sure you're not the only one, um, but you know, everything as far as like the market goes and the economy, everything's cyclical and we're all trying to kind of guess what would, I know we're getting off track here as far as buying a house, but I'm curious in this stuff. What would be like the thing to bring the market down? Is there, I mean, obviously you can't guess a pandemic, but is there like a key factor that you guys keep an eye on? I mean, I would say if interest rates go up, um, it'll decrease borrowing power and, you know, it may, it, it'll make it less accessible for a lot of people. Um, so it may weed out more buyers and maybe lead to a, a more balanced market, but, you know, it would have to be a pretty significant increase um, okay. for that to happen. And, and I don't, I, you know, they can, they're so low right now. Um, I feel like they can only go up from here anyway, Yeah. but it just depends on if they go up and if so, by how much. So you brought up interest rates. Well, this, this will allow us to kind of get back on track as far as uh, the process of buying a house. So what are the interest rates like right now and how are interest rates decided? So right now, I mean, it depends on your, your personal credit, right? Um, so right now I'm seeing anywhere from like 2.75 to about 3.5. Um, most people are around like the 2.75 to 3.25 mark. And, and that's on primary residences. So typically on, um, on investment properties, it's going to be a little bit higher. Usually it's about like one percentage point higher than that. Okay, okay. Um, I haven't gotten an investment property loan in a while. So um, I haven't had a firsthand look at one in a while. Um, it's, I've been selling mostly primaries right now. So that's what I'm seeing. Um, you know, and it's last year when they were three to 4%, that was still insanely, insanely good. Mm -hmm. They were at historic lows. So I feel like they can't really go much lower um, it's just a matter of how long do they stay this low? Mm -hmm. And where, where do they come from? Like, where do these interest rate, who, who controls that? How does that work? So, I mean, you've got the macroeconomic factors that come into play. So it's all about like the supply and demand of credit. And then you also have the individual factor. So it's going to be your credit history, um, your personal credit, your credit score, how much you're putting down the type of loan you're getting. Um, so there's a lot of different factors that influence interest rates. Okay. So it's one of those, the pros and the cons, the, the con is you're going to be paying like well over appraisal. I guess the pros, the interest rate is exactly. on your side. Exactly. Um, what do you think outweighs the other in that situation? Um, 
it's tough. It's for me, like I'm, I'm super into like personal finance and investing. And so for me to, if I were buying in this market to pay over appraisal, I know a lot of people are doing it out of desperation just to find someplace, but it, it's not right. Like it, it shouldn't be this way. Um, and so it's kind of every time that's having to happen, it's like a red flag going off in my brain um, that, you know, you're overpaying. And if it's a situation where you have to find a house and you have no other options, you know, then that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. But for, you know, people who are investing in properties who are kind of looking, but don't really need to buy, it's tough. It's tough to make that call to just to overspend like that on the house. This is, that's great. Like seeing your reaction to that question was awesome because you're an expert in this field. And for you to say there's a red flag going off, I think says a lot. It's not like, yeah. eh, whatever. It was like, if that's a red flag to you, like everybody listen up for who's not a realtor, who's thinking about buying a house, like that is something I would listen to. Yeah. It's the fact that it's a red flag to you. So yeah, I'm, I'm super happy that uh, I got in last year. I mean, I'm very happy that I got in, in 2013 into the housing market. So I was able to build equity in my last home, which, you know, helped me put down money into this home. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was huge. And at the same time, um, I also built. So is there like kind of an advantage right now in building? Just kind of be like, screw this. I'm not putting uh, offers on these houses that are crazy. I'm just going to build instead. Or is there a disadvantage with that? So there used to be, I would say maybe last year. Okay. Um, and it was funny because I would have clients looking at resale last year who, you know, we would start looking at resale and then we'd end up in new construction. And it was happening very consistently because they're like, okay, the price points are, are about the same. I'm going to go to new construction because I'm not having to compete against 10 or 15, 20 other people. Exactly. Um, And it's a brand new house for just slightly more money. So I know the maintenance in the first 10, 15, 20 years is not going to be too crazy. Well, that kind of flooded new construction. And so now even new construction is, is sometimes having, you know, calling for highest and best offers and having multiple offers. So it's kind of across the board these days. You're making me feel really lucky for getting in last January. Yeah. Anybody who bought a house and closed within the past couple of years up to, I would say, January, February of this year is super, super lucky. Wow. I thought I was lucky just because I got to work from home and I got to paint and take care of my house while working from home. (laughs) But this is making me feel really good. Like (laughs) that's one of those things, obviously no one could have predicted a pandemic. So I just happen to have really good timing with that. So I'm I'm thankful for that. Um, Okay. So back on track as far as buying a house. And I, I love the fact that we just hit on interest rates and building. So the next step, for a lot of people, I think would be finding an agent, someone like you. Do you have any tips or recommendations on how to find a good agent? So I would say number one is ask for recommendations from your friends and family, people that you know who have bought or sold houses in the past um, and ask them who they use and if they would recommend them. That's pretty much, that's, I mean, your key to finding a good professional realtor. You can do Google searches. You can, you know, you can, search until the cows come home, but you truly don't know how good they will be and how well they will represent you unless you have some sort of proof from somebody. So So what, what makes a good agent? 
That's a, that's a really good question. So, I mean, in my mind, it's someone who will advocate for you, who will point out potential flaws in the property, who will be honest and ethical. Um, someone who's not afraid to tell you like it is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're buying a house and you're going to be living in it and potentially maybe it's your dream home, maybe it's your next home, maybe it's your first home. You're going into that house with rose colored glasses on. You're looking at, oh my gosh, like, is this where I'm going to bring my kids home? Is this, you know, where I'm going to get married? And you're not, you're not looking at the house objectively. It's more about the emotions of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's great. I mean, it's, it's an amazing feeling. I felt it before as well, but you need a professional there to guide you and being like, hey, did you see this crack over the doorway? Did you notice how these floors are sloping? Did you notice that there's a leak in this corner? Um, things that, you know, you're not going to see within a 30 minute walkthrough of a house, especially when you're kind of often fantasy land dreaming about your life in that house already. So you need an agent that will be there with you and will not be afraid to point out those issues. And, and it's funny because I tell my clients um, when I first start working with them, I'm like, I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy. Um, I, believe me, I'm in sales. I want you to buy a house. Like I, I only get paid if you buy a house, mm -hmm. but I take my career very seriously. And I don't want you to buy a house that you'll later regret mm -hmm. because that reflects poorly on me as an agent. So I will make sure that you're buying the house that you truly want to buy. And not just because it's something pretty that you like. Right. And and how can you not want that from an agent? Because if you're going to be spending a few hundred thousand dollars on something in a place where you're going to live and possibly your family, right. like I want that person to find every single thing wrong with right. the house before I buy it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and granted, real estate agents are not home inspectors, right? So definitely still get a home inspection, still get all the inspections that are recommended. Um, but at the same time, an experienced agent is going to know what to watch out for before you even put money on the line. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, just as a forewarning, so you can kind of gauge your risks there. And yeah, home inspector is huge. And so even yeah. though I was building a home, my God, I still needed a home inspector. So for anybody who is building, still get a home inspector. And I had one that was calling out everything that they were doing wrong. It was pissing me off because it was like, why are you guys sucking out building a brand new house? But at the same time, I love that he was doing that. So I can write up the email to the builder and be like, you guys are slacking here, you know, like fix this. I loved, yeah. I loved that. So I knew it was done properly. I knew it was done right. So just because you're getting a house built and everything's brand new, doesn't mean it's the way it should be. Some people can be sloppy with it. Absolutely. And if anything, I feel like new construction, you should get an inspection even more so because typically there's a pre-drywall inspection where you can actually yep. get an inspection before there's even drywall or even walls up. And it's giving you basically a look at the guts of your house. And that's the only reason, that's the only way you'll know what's behind the walls. Mm -hmm. um, and so you want to make sure that that's done correctly too, before all the drywall and everything gets patched up. So it looks like a house. Yeah, I had that and that was great because I also took videos and pictures too of everything in the wall, like where the wires are, the outlets, yeah. all that stuff. So that was, it's really nice to have if I have to go back and wonder if I can, you know, put a hole here or do something yeah. into a specific wall. I'll know if I should or shouldn't do that. Yeah. That's, a, that's a great point. Um, so when somebody is with their real estate agent 
and they are walking into their house to a house, I should say, for the first time, what are the first few big key areas or points they should be looking at? It's going to depend on the house. Um, it's going to depend on, you know, knowing the year that it was built, knowing the age of the systems is a, is a huge one. Knowing, okay, what's the age of the roof? Typically the roof, the HVAC, the water heater are those big ticket items that eventually will need to be replaced. So, you know, if the roof is old and the HVAC is old and the water heater is old, you know that in the next, you know, 10, 15 years, you're gonna have a lot of capital expenditures coming up. Um, and besides that, you know, it would be looking at siding. So depending on the age of the house and when it was built, siding can be also pretty a, a big ticket item. Um, like for example, homes that are built in the late nineties, if they have masonite siding, it's very prone to water damage and moisture damage. Mm. So it actually, if it's not properly taken care of, you can literally like touch the siding and it'll disintegrate under fingers. Um, and, and it's not a, I mean, it's, it's not the greatest product, but it's not bad if you maintain it. But a lot of homeowners don't know that you're supposed to paint it every couple of years and maintain it and keep it watertight, you know, waterproof as much as you can. So that's a big one. Um, and then also I would say like plumbing pipes, looking at those, cause again, late nineties built homes, um, polybutylene was a, a material used and the problem was around the fittings. So the plastic fittings were bursting. And so people's homes were just getting flooded. Mm. And if you think of plumbing pipes, you know, they're typically in the crawl space and or under the home. And so you don't necessarily know if that's happened. So you could, it could go, you know, two, three weeks without you noticing. And then you look in your crawl space for whatever reason, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's flooded. Mm. Um, so, you know, keeping that in mind, looking at the materials that are, that the house is made of and being aware of the risks of that will help you. It'll go a long way. Yeah, this is great information. Now, I know you said like roofs, like how old, what do you consider an old roof? So it, it really depends. Typically the lifespan is about 25 to 30 years on the longer end. Um, so if you're looking, if you've got a roof, that's about, I would say anything 10 years old or newer, um, I wouldn't worry about so much, but it also depends on, you know, the location. So are there trees overhanging the roof? Are the gutters dirty? Um, do they have a lot of debris? Um, have they, you know, cause you can soft wash a roof as well to get all the algae off. Mm. Um, it's just a matter of like, you know, a 10 year old roof that's been well taken care of will have a longer lifespan than a 10 year old roof that has leaves all over it. And, you know, has a lot of moisture under that's been collecting. So it really just depends on who has been taking care of it. Okay. And living down here in the South, we obviously run our air conditioning quite a bit, um, what is an old HVAC? How old is, would you consider old? I would say probably similar to roofs, so like 10 to 15 years. Um, okay. the, you know, I would be looking at, once you're at in that range, I would be putting money aside every month and just start saving for a new unit. Wow, okay. Yeah, that's great advice. Cause I'm basically trying to give people a mental checklist when they walk into a house to actually write these things down and get to right. know what's old, what's okay, what to look for. 
Yeah. And in North Carolina, you know, they're, they're disclosures of a property. So if they've been filled out, which it depends on if the previous, um, if the owner has lived there or not, sometimes if it's an investment property, they'll just say, don't know. Um, but if they've been filled out, obviously if someone's put a new roof on their house within a couple of years, they're going to be marketing that they're going to be saying, Hey, roof a couple of years old. Mm-hmm. And, and that might help you, you know, run your numbers as far as, okay, how much do I offer? You might be a little bit more comfortable offering more right. on a house that has a newer roof versus one that has a roof that will need to be replaced in the next couple of years. Okay. And so for somebody looking to buy a house and or sell a house, what brings the most value? Like what can I do today to increase the value of my house tomorrow? So kitchen and bathrooms are still like kind of the top um, as far as remodeling and getting those updated um, neutral colors. So if you have a house with pink and purple and red and green rooms, getting that repainted and neutral, you know, gray, beige, even white, it goes a long way. Um, That brings value, the paint color. I mean, I know it's a hell of a lot easier on the paint, but that actually brings value. Yeah. I mean, so it's all about marketing and aesthetics. So you want someone, you want a buyer to walk in and fall in love with their home, with your home and picture themselves there. So if you've got your bedroom is red and another bedroom is pink and another bedroom is green, and that's not necessarily a color scheme that they would pick, they're going to feel like, oh, I'm just looking at someone else's house. They're not going to picture themselves there. So that's why staging is also really important. Um, because you want it to be welcoming and inviting for the same reason I, you know, I tell my sellers, don't put up any personal pictures, like take all your personal items down. Um, because I've had buyers, you know, they'll, they'll say to me when we walk into a house, they're like, Oh, it feels weird. Like, do you ever feel weird? Like you're just like creeping around someone else's house. I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's my job. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are some things to do that, will make your home just stand out to anybody and they can walk in and envision themselves there. Okay. Because when I do watch shows like house hunters and whatnot, the first thing you hear people bitch about is like walking in like, Oh, this is ugly color, which I get. But at the same time, to me, it's almost like, well, if you like the house, you can paint the room. That's how I see it. That's very true. And I try to remind buyers of that, but it's still a lot of people don't have that vision. They can't, they can't vision, you know, the room a different color, mm-hmm. as simple as it may seem. Um, and it's for that reason that a lot of new construction, you know, you can't, they have, you know, um, the renderings and the floor plans and everything to make it look like what it would in real life because people in general just can't envision things. Mm. And that's where being a graphic artist comes in, comes in handy. Yeah. I can, I can envision stuff. So yeah. it doesn't, doesn't really bother me as much. And at the very least, a lot of times what I end up doing is actually taking photos and changing the color in Photoshop. If I really oh, nice. envision something or yeah, I do cool. that. Yeah. I do that. If I'm going to like hang something on the wall to make sure it's the right size, I like the way it looks and go ahead and do it. Yeah. So kind of maybe, I don't know, a little too much, but, <laughs> um, so this is kind of a broad question. Do you have a recommendation-ish of how many houses maybe people should see to get a feel for what they're looking for? It's going to really depend on the person. Um, and, you know, if it's their first home, if it's their second home, if they've bought multiple homes before, it's really going to depend on their comfort level. Generally, I would say 
between five and 10 is where the average is. Mm -hmm. Um, and in this market, you know, people are having to look at more houses and put in more offers before even getting something. So, but yeah, I would say at least five. Um, and I, I've had clients who've bought the first home that they saw and they're super happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not really the norm. Yeah. I, I remember I'm going back in time here when I was looking before I bought this house and I was looking every day, looking on like Zillow and Redfin and just browsing houses, going to see in person. There, there comes a point in time. I think it was probably three to four months in where I felt like I understood the market. I knew what I was going to get for what area and for how much. So yeah, as much as like, I literally just kind of jumped in in the beginning and started browsing. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. There comes a point in time where you get comfortable and you have a really good pulse on the situation for how much something should be worth. Yeah, exactly. Um, being an agent, um, what, what are your thoughts on Zillow and Redfin? Uh, what are the pros? What are the cons? I see you smiling a little bit. Tell me about that. <laughs> um, so, you know, part of it is they've publicized information that realtors used, it used to just be realtors that had access to the MLS, right? And so, you know, back, in, I wasn't even an agent back before Zillow and Trulia and, and Redfin. Um, but they were, you know, realtors used to have literal like catalogs of homes for sale. And so Zillow has made the information public, which there's been, you know, every MLS, which is where the homes are listed, fights with Zillow in some capacity. I know the Triangle MLS is fighting with them because essentially as a realtor, I'm paying dues to have access to this. And that's partially what my clients are paying me for. Um, and so when Zillow publicizes that information, it's basically a lot of realtors see it as like devaluing what realtors do and the, the access that we have. Um, and, you know, it's tough because now Zillow syndicates, but only if I allow it. So I had to go in and check and allow my firm's listing to be syndicated to Zillow. So when buyers are looking on Zillow, they're very rarely is Zillow accurate. It'll say that something is active when it may have closed two months ago. Um, yeah, why? Why is this so slow? I noticed that when I was looking at Zillow, I'm like, oh, this is cool. And I'd call on it and be like, it's gone. I'm like, well, what is this still doing up here? Yeah, so it, it like- depends on that agent if, they, if, they, if that brokerage allows the syndication or not. Huh. Um, the syndication is basically Zillow communicating with the MLS. So if they're not connected, then if it's updated in the MLS as under contract, but Zillow is not in communication, then Zillow is going to still have it active. So how does someone know if it's still active or not? Call your realtor. Yeah. This is good. This is honestly great information because people, (laughs) I know thousands of people are looking at Zillow right now and they're thinking, oh, this house is awesome. They're falling in love with something that's not even available. (laughs) Exactly. And I dealt with that. um, When you browse on like a realtor's website, then you're getting something that's more up to date because it's it's called IDX, the Internet Data Exchange, where that realtor is paying the MLS to have access um, to pull those listings to their website. So, for example, I have that on my website um, where people can go and search homes, and it's up to date because I'm paying the MLS to have access to that for my okay. buyers. Okay. 
Yeah, this is great information. Now, I want to touch on, you said kitchens and bathrooms. What exactly in kitchens and bathrooms increase the value? So, you know, a couple of easy swaps would be countertop, um, granite, and granite's actually, it used to be really, really common. Now quartz is becoming more and more common. Um, quartz is a little bit more expensive, but it's, you know, it's trendy. Um, so why, why is that for people who don't know? Aesthetics. Um, yeah. I know with granite, you know, you can place like hot items on the actual granite and you're not going to burn it. Um, but yeah, it's really just aesthetics, maybe longevity over time. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that, um, backsplash, that's a pretty easy way to kind of dress up or accent your kitchen. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in cabinets and you can paint cabinets typically. Um, so I would say those are probably top three. Okay. And I imagine the size of the kitchen, maybe having an yeah. Island or so. Yeah. Yeah. And it depends on your price point. You know, if you're, if you're selling a town home versus a million dollar home, right. um, Island I'm seeing, you know, like, um, breakfast bars and to the point where almost like dining rooms are non-existent anymore mm -hmm. or people are repurposing their dining rooms for offices. Um, and a lot of new construction now they're not, they don't even have a formal dining. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. My, my area is just completely wide open. I do have a dining table, um, but I don't really use it that often. It's nice to have, but who actually really uses their dining room? You know, it's usually just yeah. sit down on the kitchen island or go to the coffee table, watch TV or sit in your home office and eat something. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what about, what about bathrooms? What can people do in bathrooms to increase that value? So, I mean, again, it's going to be your, your sink, your fixture, your vanity. Um, that's, I would say that's probably number one. And it's super economical to do that. Um, mm -hmm. I'd say a new bathroom vanity, you know, you can get crazy with it too, but you can find a nice one, five, around $500. Mm -hmm. um, your, um, the, like the, the handles, um, your finishes, you know, if they're like the old brass, mm -hmm. um, updating those to maybe a brush nickel or, or something a little bit more modern. Um, that's an easy way. The shower or bathtub, it's funny because it depends on, again, like the age of your home, but a lot of homes that were built in, you know, the eighties or nineties, they have that like square tile. Mm -hmm. um, or if it's just like that fiberglass insert and it does, it yellows over time and they get like grimy looking. So actually what um, I have some sellers do is they can refinish it. Like you can have someone come and reglaze it. Mm. And they're essentially in a way like painting it. It's like paint and lacquer. Um, it takes a day or two and your house gets like really fumy, but it makes it look like a brand new bathtub or shower. And they're literally, it's just like paint. Um, so, and it's, you know, the last time I got that done was a couple of years ago, but I want to say it was like 700, $800. So it's much cheaper than putting in like a brand new tub or shower. Now, does a pool increase the value of a home? It can. Um, I would say even more now um, because, you know, people are working from home. They're looking for like their oasis. 
it's not something like I wouldn't necessarily put in a pool just to increase the value of the home, mm -hmm. but it certainly does add value. Um, I've seen anywhere from like 15 to 20,000. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now I put in a fence. What about a fence? Does that increase the value? It's again, it's one of those things where I wouldn't necessarily do that just to add value. A lot mm -hmm. of things, you know, are personal preference, but it would definitely add value to your marketing if you were to sell it. Mm -hmm. um, so you could add that as like, oh, fenced in yard. But, you know, whether I would just put in a fence just to increase the value of my home. Yeah. Necessarily. Yeah. Because I paid, I think, about $3,500, $4,000 it. Just kind of wondering, you know, when I sell it, will I get that back? Is it Was it worth putting that in there? Obviously, it was worth it for me for my daily life. Um, I wouldn't have done it. But yeah, exactly. I was, I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of improvements in general, you won't get like a one for one return on, like maybe you'll get 80 cents on the dollar. Um, but in general, kitchen, bathrooms, like flooring, it depends on what it looked like before. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but those are kind of the, the bigger things. Let's just say I'm looking to make an upgrade to sell my house. Um, I know we're going, we're going back and forth between buying and selling, which I think is fine. Um, let's say I'm looking to make an upgrade to sell my house. Like what is something that people do that is just completely worthless that they think they're doing is like, Oh, this is going to make a big difference. Um, that's, a, that's another good question. I don't know that I've really run into anyone who who's done something that's like absolutely worthless. Mm -hmm. um, I would say it's worthless if, to do something just to increase the value it's worthless to, I don't know, in my opinion, in this market, especially, you know, I've had some sellers ask me, okay, well, I want to prep the house for sale, maybe a month or two. Um, the HVAC, it's getting old, but it's still working, still running fine. It's been maintained regularly. Should I put in a new unit? And that's, that's pretty costly. You know, it can be yeah. five to $8,000. And, you know, if it's, and if it's been serviced annually, there's no reason to, mm -hmm. to just say, Oh, brand new HVAC unit. Mm -hmm. Do you think you could get five to $8,000 more for the house just because of that? Probably not. Mm. So in those cases, it's not usually worth it to do that. Okay. Now the answer to my next question, you might've already kind of answered this, but like, what are like the biggest deal breakers that someone should be looking for uh, when, when buying a house? Like, obviously I'm going to guess you're going to say roof and HVAC. Is there any other no, and I necessarily, I didn't, don't even think those are necessarily deal breakers. Um, okay. You just have to factor that into your purchase price and the offer that you're making because a roof can be replaced, right? An HVAC can be replaced. There, anything can be fixed. I would say structural issues is where you're going to get really in the nitty gritty, um, especially if there are issues that you can't really fully see. Because um, a lot of the time, you know, with homes, like I've, I've, done a lot of investing. And so, you know, I've done rehab projects where I go in and it's not until you're like knocking down walls that you actually find more issues. Um, so, you know, an inspection is designed to help you at least be well-informed of everything. Um, but structural that can get really expensive really quick. Mm how can you find structural issues just yourself without, I obviously I recommend hiring an inspector, but if you're just going to check out the house, what are you looking for? So it's going to depend on the age of the house. 
Um, but typically, like if you're walking through the house and the floors are wavy, like if you're going up and down, um, that's a factor. If it's an old home, normal settling will occur. So, you know, that's somewhat normal. But if you have areas where it's like significantly sloping, especially towards like the outside of the house, I would definitely do a full walk around regardless of what age of the house it is. Um, look for like stair step cracking. Look for areas that any cracks in particular. Sometimes when they're like over doors, it's when they're diagonal. When they're straight, like up and down, then it's that's normal and cosmetic. Mm -hmm. But when they're diagonal, or if you even have like, sometimes I'll see homes where it's diagonal, it's like pulling away a little bit. Um, you really want to look for that. That's great. I had no idea about that. I mean, obviously, if I saw a crack, I'd be concerned. But the fact that you just said it was diagonal, be concerned. Yeah. About those. And, you know, it's tough to determine what's regular settling and what is structural. So at the end of the day, only a structural engineer can tell you that. But in general, settling is normal. So especially in a house that's not brand new, even brand new houses, you know, after they've been through a year, they've had all four seasons, they settle. So doors rubbing, um, uneven floors, it, you know, things like kitchen counters or um, cabinets kind of pulling away. That's normal. Mm. It's normal settling. Now so, you just, sorry yeah. to cut you off. You just said structural engineers. Is an inspector a structural engineer or are they just two completely separate people? Completely separate people. So a home inspector is going to give you, so they're generalists. So they're going to give you a broad view of the whole house. They're going to inspect every system. Uh, and they're going to point out areas where maybe you need to hire a specialist. So if they notice a crack, they'll generally make a re recommendation of like, okay, I, this doesn't seem structural, but to be, to be certain, you may want to hire a structural engineer. Mm -hmm. Or if, you know, some pipes, plumbing pipes, for example, um, they may say, you know, consult a plumber, a licensed plumber. So they're going to make recommendations based on what they find, but they're not a specialist. And this is where I think people get slightly nervous because the costs start adding up. Yep. So we, we have structural engineers, we have inspectors. I'm going to also put in the radon test. Yep. Um, it's, it just starts adding up real yeah. fast. Yeah. Um, yeah, so people listening to this, do you recommend all of that 10 times out of 10? Or is there a way anybody can be like, listen, like you can probably get away with not doing that and save the money. So a hundred percent in home inspection, just general home inspection, radon and pest. Um, you know, with pest inspection, if it's new construction, I'm, you know, you may not need it depending on if the new construction, if they're pre-treating already. And if they have, if they offer like a one year warranty on that. Um, so you may not need that right away, but for sure, home inspection, radon, and honestly, pests just to be safe because you just never know. Mm -hmm. um, from there, from the home inspection, you'll get a lot more information on if you need to hire any specialists, if you need to hire a structural engineer or a plumber or an electrician. Um, that is what's going to tell you, you know, how far you need to take it. Mm -hmm. So you do recommend the radon then? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Every 100%. time, every location, everywhere? Yes. Because radon, so radon is located like in the earth and you can't smell it. You can't see it. You can't detect it really. And it causes lung cancer. 
So it's one of those things. You can have two houses in the same neighborhood. They can be right next to each other. You can have one that has high radon, and then you can have another that has normal levels. So you just never know, um, especially if you're going to be living there, especially if anyone's going to be living there or spending a significant amount of time there. It's definitely worth it. That's me. That's great feedback. So if I were to get my radon tested, which I did before I bought this house, would I ever need to do it again? Or once you're clear, you're good to go. Um, once you're clear, you should be good to go. Um, you know, if it's been a significant amount of time, I would say it's a hundred, 125 bucks, you know, for the peace of mind, Mm -hmm. but typically once you have it done, like it's fine. Um, Mm -hmm. unless it's, unless it comes in over, so the recommend, so the EPA like action level is four pico carries per liter. So if it's four or less, then you don't have to get anything done. If it comes in higher than that, then you want to get a mitigation system installed. Okay. So that's one thing, like if you had it, you had the test and it came in high and you got a mitigation system installed, you definitely want to retest and make sure that the mitigation system is doing what it's supposed to. And then at that point, I would retest every maybe couple of years just to make sure the mitigation system is still working and still functioning. And if I'm buying a house with a radon level that's higher, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but would the seller have to pay for that? It's all up to negotiations. Yeah. Um, typically in new construction, so I would look at that. If you're buying new construction, it may be in a new construction contract. Um, their contracts may spell out specifically you know, if you detect high radon, then they will pay for it. I've seen that before in the typical like standard offer to purchase. It's negotiable. Okay. And so now we're moving along here in the chain of buying a home. So what are some of the biggest mistakes that people have made that you have seen when purchasing a house? Biggest mistakes. Um, I mean, honestly, besides a lot of what we've already covered. Is there like any regrets that people may have? Like they just skip something or they move too fast through something or is there anything from your experience? Not that I know, not that anybody has made me aware of. Okay. Yeah. I mean, really it's going to be appraisals. Okay. Okay. Um, You know, I've had clients who get the home inspected and then they back out because they're either because the inspector either reveals something that they can't get over um, or we just weren't able to work it out with the seller. But typically, typically it's more of like an emotional freak out versus because everything, you know, everything can be fixed. Right. But, you know, I've had buyers back out when they're like, Oh, I can't handle this. You know, I, I don't like, even if it's fixed, like I don't want this house anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe some buyer's remorse. Okay in this market, especially because if you see a house that you somewhat like, you have to jump on it um, basically immediately. So you don't really have time to think. And that's where the months and months of research come into into play. Because if you see a house, you'll know if you kind of like it or not. Um, If it's your first house, you're like, eh, maybe, maybe not. Um, Let's talk about backing out actually. So at what point can you back out without penalty and then when do the penalties start to add up so you can back out really anytime before closing but there's always going to be a penalty so in north carolina there's kind of two phases there's due diligence and there's earnest money so when you go under contract on a house you you essentially you put up the due diligence deposit and the earnest money deposit due diligence it pays for 
essentially the seller will take it off the market for the first two, three weeks for you to do your inspections, survey, appraisal. Basically, the day that your due diligence expires, you should be 100% certain that you're going to move forward with the purchase. So due diligence is kind of like me going in the store and say, listen, I'm going to pay you a little bit of money just to take this off the shelf, right? Is that basically what exactly. I'm doing? Yeah. Oh. Except of course now it's not a little bit of money. It's exactly. 20, 30, 50,000 in due diligence. Wow. And you know, this money, when you go to closing, it gets credited back to you. So it's not like you're, it's an extra deposit. It's only if you back out during that period that the seller keeps the money. It's essentially like liquidated damages. So, and you can back out for any reason. It doesn't have to be inspection related. You don't even have to give a reason. You can just say, hey, change my mind. But in this market, when it's 30, 40 or $50,000, most buyers aren't backing out. They're just kind of dealing with the consequences. Yeah, as a seller, I'd almost be like, please, I'm gonna back out. <laughs> I'll take that money, you, I'll sell my house tomorrow. on the market. And you get 50 grand in your pocket. So. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. That'd be pretty great. Okay. And you said earnest money. So what's, what's the definition yeah. of that? So earnest money comes into play after that. It's not as important as due diligence to sellers um, because it's held in escrow. So it's held by typically the closing attorney. Um, and it's still, it gets applied to your purchase, but it's just one of those, you know, once you're past the due diligence period, let's say you go into the earnest money period, let's say something happens with your loan and you can't close for whatever reason, or you've done the due diligence, but then your job doesn't go through or something happens, you can still back out. You're not on the hook. Like you're not forced to buy the house, but at that point you would lose due diligence and earnest money. Mm. How much is earnest money usually? Right now I see it as less than due diligence. It's funny because they've kind of flipped over the years. It used to be due diligence, I've done like $500 due diligence before. Um, of course, this is a long time ago. And earnest money used to be a little bit higher because it's held in escrow, so it's a little bit safer. Now it's flipped. So you see super, super high due diligence. And I've even won some offers with, you know, super high due diligence and no earnest money mm. because that's basically, it's going all to the seller immediately. Um, but in general, I would say five or 10,000 is, is a decent amount. Who decides that? cost. It's up to the buyer. Okay. This is uh, really good information. I'm literally taking notes on this. <laughs> um, what kind of breaks do first time homeowners get? So there's a couple of different programs out there. Um, there are, I know NC is like NC housing finance agency. I want to say they'll offer grants. Um, Typically the home buyer, the first time home buyer has to make a certain income or like certain within certain limits. I think it's like 150% of like median national income. Um, the, your lender or whoever you use as a lender is going to have a lot more information on that. Um, Cause with a lot of those, you know, they're like government, you know, government funded um, grants. Mm -hmm. so. Wasn't there something too, as far as like taking money out of your 401k or something like that, you can put down in a house and not get penalized for it or something like that? I know with your IRA, you can, um, if it's for, if you're purchasing, you're like a primary residence with it. Okay. Yeah. That's really good to know too. And yeah. I know you obviously are very specialized in North Carolina. Do you feel like the rules, the quote unquote, the rules in North Carolina are somewhat common across the 50 States or are we kind of like a standalone? 
it, so every state is different in how they do real estate. Um, for example, I have a lot of clients who relocate here and they've never heard of due diligence. So it, due diligence is something that's specifically North Carolina. Oh, okay. And yeah, every state is different. So you really, you know, that's why every real estate agent, when you're licensed, is licensed specifically for that state only. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The great thing is, is like a lot of your advice and information just, you know, it, it plays a part in every 50, all 50 states, you know, everything you said, let's talk about the house and stuff. Yeah. Um, so here's, I really want to know this after watching like property brothers and, you know, buying a couple homes myself. So I'm ready to put the offer in, right? What are you doing? What is your process after I say, let's do it. Here's my offer. What is your process behind the scenes? So I generally, the first thing is I reach out to the listing agent and find out, hey, how many offers do you have if they're able to disclose? Does your seller have any preferred terms? So for example, in this market, you know, you've got a lot of sellers that they're, they've listed the house and maybe they haven't found another house yet and they don't want to be homeless. So they can't close in 30 days. Maybe they want a longer closing. Maybe they want a 60 day closing, or maybe they want to close in 30 days but then rent back for another 30 days. Um, and so those are things that it depends on the listing agent. You know, sometimes a listing agent will have that in the notes to, to help any buyer's agents writing up an offer, just saying, hey, we request a rent back from such and such period. And I try to do that as a listing agent, um, but sometimes they don't. So sometimes you have to call them specifically to find out. Sometimes they want a shorter closing. So you just never know. Sometimes they want to keep certain things in the house um, you know, personal property, maybe they, they want to keep their fridge and the washing dryer. So that's my first call is to the listing agent. Now, if it's a super popular property, a lot of listing agents, you know, it's either a call, text, email, I'll reach out anyway. Do you um, see the listing agent as almost like your rival, your competition, or is it your comrade in this situation? So I do not ever look at as a listing agent as my rival. No, no, it's, it's very common. Um, and a lot of agents think that way. They think, mm -hmm. oh, we're like, we're, we're going to fight this out. I'm like, no, you both are working for the same common goal. Their seller wants to sell, your buyer wants to buy. Mm -hmm. So it makes the transaction so much better when people are just civil with each other and treat it, you know, yes, emotions are involved typically, especially when listing or when the owner has been there for a long time. Um, it's a very emotional process for everybody, but it's important to keep in mind. It is also business. Um, and especially agents, when they get their emotions involved, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, transactions are so much better when you just have two professional agents and they're working together to get this closed. Mm -hmm. um, Cause that's, I mean, I, I want to get it closed. I'm sure that other agent wants to get it closed. We both want to get paid. So there's no like rivalry. Um, but you know, I've been in some situations where you've had, you work with nasty agents and it's just one of those things. It just comes to the territory. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm just thinking like, I know when I made an offer, it's like, I really hope my agent is behind closed doors battling for me and, and fighting for me yeah. and standing up for what I believe in. So I'm yeah, always curious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's a difference between, you know, being rude to the listing agent and protecting your client, right? Like I'll always protect my client, especially 
any personal financial info, um, you want to make sure that the buyer's agent is working in your best interest. So not disclosing any information to the listing agent that you want to help you want kept private. But at the same time, you don't necessarily need to treat the listing agent as if they're your enemy. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a fine line. So why is it, maybe I'm wrong here, why is it that the person who put the bid on the house cannot be involved in those meetings? You mean the buyer? Yeah. Like, what's, not, what's to say they can't be involved? Okay. I mean, well, I don't know. Cause a lot of times, like when I, well, a lot of times when I've put my offers on my, both of my houses, like they're like, okay, I'll come back to you and let you know. Like, why can't I be involved in like that conversation or the b- debate between oh. you? Um, so, okay. I think I understand. If so I, if I just wanted to hear the conversation that you and the, and the listener. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it is to protect you. So, cause there's a lot of different nuances that like, you may not know, oh, I shouldn't say this, that it may ruin your negotiating power. Uh, And you just may spit something out and you just don't know. Um, So it's mostly to protect the client. Mm. And, you know, I, I tend to be, I don't know, probably a little bit too nice, a little bit too naive, but there are agents out there who will steal your clients. And so part of it is protecting your client's contact information until you're at closing even after closing okay um because they'll reach out to your client and try to try to take them Mm. so it's partially that and partially just protecting your client okay yeah i was just wondering because i feel like once you make the offer it's just out of your hands and you're just sitting there and you don't know what is being said and sometimes i'd be like i'm really curious to know what they're talking about right now so yeah you can always ask yeah but you're right. I mean, there's obviously a con to doing that. So think twice yeah, about I mean, that. Well, you can always ask your agent, I meant. Because um, your agent should be able to freely talk to you about everything. Yeah. And and honestly, you know, I don't always tell my clients what's going on. Mm. Um, out of protection for them. Um, I don't know. It's just one of those things where that's my job is to protect them and to cause them the least amount of stress possible. Yeah. And so if there's something that I can handle where it doesn't even have to go back to my client and it's less stress for them. That's my job. Right. So for example, like I had one, we went under contract and I got an email, we were buying from an iBuyer. So it was one of those like open door offer pad, you know, a corporation owned the property. And they typically, they have a systematized like process for everything. So we went under contract and they said, Hey, here's the address to send the, they said due diligence checks too. So due diligence and earnest money. And so I said, okay, send it to my client. They mailed the checks, overnight them. And then I get an email again from, from that company saying, hey, actually you were supposed to send the due diligence check to this address and the earnest money check to this address. Mm. And I looked back at the email. I said, well, you only gave me one address and you said checks, plural. And they said, your client has to recut the check and cancel their other check. And it was a cashier's check. And it was one of those situations where I was like, no, I have proof right here. You told me that this was the address it should be sent to. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it's now sent to that address, that's your problem. Mm-hmm. It's not my client's problem. Yeah. And so and they're like, oh, okay, that was it. And so if I had taken that to my client and have them do the runaround again, get that money back from the cashier's check, reissue another check, mail it again, you know, especially with people who have families, who have lives, like, it's a, they didn't necessarily need to do that, especially when it wasn't their mistake. And this so, is why having a, a good agent is super important. Now yeah. we're getting uh, a look behind the veil 
to see all. Yeah, exactly. And no, I didn't tell my clients that I haven't told them. Um, I I had that pushback, but that's my job is to make it easier on them. Exactly. No, that's awesome. That's, that's, that's a great example. Um, some things that I've seen and or heard of when people are looking to purchase a house is they write them a letter. Have you ever seen that? And you ever seen that work? Yes, I've seen it work. Um, it's becoming, it's very debated in, in my market, especially, um, here in the triangle, because it's becoming more and more common because, you know, everybody is so desperate to get a house. So they will write a letter and it does. I mean, it tugs at your heartstrings. Like I, I had a flip last year that I sold and I had an offer from a private equity firm for 10,000 more than I was asking. And I have an offer at asking with this like adorable letter. And so me, I'm like, oh, it's like heart and you know, your heart versus your head. Right. Um, it can definitely influence people. Um, and that's both a good and a bad thing. Right. So a lot of, I'm seeing more and more agents say no love letters. Like they won't even, um, send them to their clients anymore on the list side. So they won't even present the love letters to the sellers anymore because one, when you have 50 offers, you know, if you have 50 love letters, no, you're not going to read through every single one. Um, but it also gets into, you know, potential fair housing violations. Mm. So if you include a picture of your family in the love letter, like what's not to say that someone's, you know, discriminating or not discriminating mm-hmm. or, you know, favoring you based on your picture or what you look like or what you include, you know, there's different familial status, there's age, there's race ethnicity. So I'm actually seeing that a lot more agents are saying no love letters. Mm. Now, as a realtor, I have to imagine that kind of is a little, I don't know, irks you maybe a little bit if they're taking less money for a family that affects you and your paycheck. Am I right? I mean, yeah, technically, um, I've never looked at it that way. You know, if I'm making a sale, I'm making a sale. Like it's, Mm -hmm. I want my clients to do what's best for them Mm -hmm. because in the end, that's only going to make them happier with me. You know, um, I don't necessarily want them to do something just to benefit me mm-hmm. because the way I look at it, it's a long-term relationship. So I'm not looking at this, oh, it's just a transaction. Like, oh, I'm going to make $300 less because they took a less of an offer. Mm-hmm. If they're, I want them to be pleased with my service and pleased with my like work ethic and integrity, because that means they're going to go tell their friends like, hey, I worked with Tiffany. She was awesome. Like you guys should use her. That's worth way more to me than three or four hundred dollars because of a lower commission. Okay, because one thing I'm, I guess, I'm kind of think of in my head is like in the world of athletics and sports, how like when a player takes less, his agent gets less, and then all the players are like, "What the heck? You're you were supposed to set the market here with a better, you know, uh, salary, yeah. and you kind of screwed everyone else over." So, does accepting lower does that actually kind of hurt the comps in the neighborhood too? Yeah, it can. Um, and it really depends on how much lower, you know, if you're still talking significantly over asking, then it's probably not going to make much of a difference. Mm-hmm. I've seen some where, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a client who had a listing and his neighbor sold for way, way less than he should have because he got really desperate. He, I think he, like he got into some financial issues and he just needed to sell fast. And so he took basically the first offer that he got Um, And he hadn't even, I don't think he listed it publicly. He just went with, you know, an investor and 
of course, other neighbors were pissed because they're like, well, dude, you just ruined, you know, the values of our home. So part of it, like an appraiser may take that into account too, is, um, is like different motivations if that's public information, but I wouldn't worry if it's like a one-off, you can usually tell. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't worry about it too much unless it's, you know, the entire neighborhood, but that's, that would be setting the price. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious about that. And so now we're basically at the end of the buying journey and we have to pony up some closing costs. What exactly are closing costs and what do they cover? So they cover, you know, your lender's fee. Um, typically it's like an origination fee that your lender's going to charge. That's how they get paid. Um, if you're buying down your interest rate, sometimes that happens. Like if you, if you want a lower interest rate, you can pay, like it's called paying discount points. Um, and it's typically a percentage of the loan amount. So you can buy down the interest rate. And if you plan to be in the house long-term, you know, it, it might be favorable, but that's something you pay up front. You can pay for upfront um, PMI. So it just, it depends because PMI is usually over the life of the loan. Um, so if, for anybody who's listening, yeah, what's PMI stand for? So that's if you put down less than 20%, um, you'll have, it's like basic, it's mortgage insurance um, until you get to a certain equity level. Mm-hmm. So it's usually when you have 22% equity, um, 78% loan to value, then you can get rid of the PMI um, on conventional loans at least. Do, do but, you get automatically noticed when that happens or do you have to go back and say, hey, I think I hit my PMI? So when you're at 22% equity and it's 78% loan to value, it automatically drops off. Mm-hmm. This is with conventional. Um, I, I believe when you're at 20%, you can refinance. But at that point, it's like, well, if it's, you know, you have to weigh the pros and cons of like, if you're going to refinance when in a month or two, it's going to drop off anyway, and you're paying closing costs again, it's not typically worth it. Okay. So back to closing costs, do they cover anything else too? Um, Your attorney's fees. So whatever the closing attorney is charging to handle the transaction, it'll be prorated taxes for the year based on what day you close. It'll be insurance. So typically they'll collect like a year's of homeowner's insurance um, and put it in escrow. It'll be title insurance. Um, both probably on the lender side and on the owner side. That's if, you know, down the road, there are any title issues, that insurance is what's going to protect you and pay out. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think what else. And, and, HOA dues. Okay. And in my experience, closing costs are negotiable, correct? To a certain extent. I mean, you can typically negotiate with your lender on their fees. Um, Sometimes you can negotiate with a closing attorney. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that just because, I don't know. For me, I don't mind paying a, for a good attorney because you don't really want to skimp out on, on an attorney. Hmm. Um, you want them to do what they're supposed to do. So I don't typically negotiate attorney fees. Um, some will try though. Um, but besides that, not much else is negotiable unless you're also getting like a closing cost cost credit from the seller. Okay. So that can always be negotiated too. Gotcha. And I do believe I actually got that for the house that I just built. I think I got a credit. So yeah, usually it's pretty common in new construction, especially if you use like the preferred lender, preferred closing attorney. Exactly what I did. Yeah. Yeah. A chunk. Okay, cool. And I know you brought up the term escrow a few times. If you can explain what escrow is. Yeah. So it's essentially a third-party account like held on your behalf. Mm -hmm. So after you close, um, 
you know, it depends on the lender, but most lenders will escrow your taxes and insurance. So that way you're not hit with a huge tax bill at the end of the year that you have to all of a sudden like pony up. Um, so essentially it breaks it down into monthly increments and you're paying that into this account. It's like a savings account. Mm-hmm. And then they will pay your property taxes out of that account. Yeah, it's, so it's actually a great thing. Yeah. Say it again. They'll usually co- collect a couple months in advance just mm-hmm. so you have kind of a buffer in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it makes it super, super easy. And if you pay more than what you owe in taxes, you get the money back, right? They send you a check. Uh, yeah, I don't know that that's ever happened. Though. Uh-huh. It's usually the opposite where, you know, if your property gets reassessed and the property taxes go up, then your monthly mortgage will go up. Mm. And that's not because your principal and interest went up. It's because your taxes and insurance part of it went up. Gotcha. You're doing an awesome job here explaining. We're gonna, we're almost done here. We're gonna end this momentarily, but I wanted to get your thoughts. You brought up Open Door. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything about Open Door, but I haven't seen commercials and hearing stuff on the radio for Open Door. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on Open Door? So, I mean, they're an iBuyer and based as internet buyer, um, and they're not the only ones. So there's OfferPad. Zillow is actually in the space now. Um, there's a bunch of, diff- of different iBuyers out there. But essentially what they do is they make you a below market offer. They're glorified house flippers. They're just a big corporation doing it nationwide. Um, So they'll make you a lower offer cash close in a week or two. Um, Typically they'll negotiate some sort of repair money in there. Um, They're also a brokerage. So they have their own real estate agent. So they're collecting that fee on top of it. So you really want to, make sure that you're accounting for all those fees because typically they'll nickel and dime you. Hmm. And then what they do is they will upgrade the home. It's typically like paint and carpet um, once they buy it and then they'll relist it on the market. Okay. So is it almost like a CarMax in a way? Um, I guess so. I mean, it's, it's basically a house flipper who's just doing massive amounts of volume and very, very little work. Um, so they typically won't go in and make, they're not going to turn a kitchen into like open concept. They're not going to knock down walls. They're going to do very, very basic things, Mm -hmm. um, to kind of spruce up a property a little bit, and then they're going to list it again. So for somebody who's looking to sell their house, who should be considering open door and perhaps like who shouldn't? Yeah. I mean, so open door has its place. It's really for people who are desperate to sell. Like if something happens, financially or family-wise and they have to sell that's you know typically when people will sell to open door Mm. Um, but even then open door takes so many repair because you're paying for the repairs at that point Um, they take so much out of it that it might even be better to just sell directly to an investor um, who maybe isn't this nationwide you know i buyer but maybe they're an investor in the area in the market which there are plenty of those as well. And they'll buy it cash um, and may not even charge you for the repairs. Mm. So there's always those options, but it's typically for a seller who's kind of in um, in like disaster mode. Awesome. Well, Tiffany, I feel like you've answered like more than my fair share of questions. <laughs> Before we wrap this up, let's just give the listeners you know, an opportunity to find you online. Yeah, I would say I probably hang out the most on Instagram. And my Instagram handle is just tiffany.alexi. 
Okay. And yeah, you're obviously an expert in this area. I'm super happy that I had you on. Uh, You shed so much good light uh, on this situation. And like I said, I've bought two houses. I learned a lot today and you brought a lot back to me, which is, is huge. So like I said, you know, at some point in the future, when I look to buy another home, who knows when that's going to be like, I will listen to this again and I'll have, uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a platform to remember exactly the whole process, what I should look for, a checklist of things I should be looking for. So awesome. you know, thank you. Thank you so much for, for yeah. joining the podcast. Uh, I appreciate it so much. And everybody, please check her out. She's got all the answers and you got a cool too. Well, it sounded like you did today. So (laughs) thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. And enjoy Apple coming to the area. I'm sure that's going to be amazing for you. So yep. Yeah. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks so much. And you can find me on the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. special thank you to Tiffany Alexi for joining me on this episode and giving all of that amazing information. Like I said, if you've bought a house, I'm sure you learned something today. If you haven't bought a house, I'm sure you learned a lot today. Bookmark this episode. You can come back, listen to it, get all that great information all over again. We really get into the details. So I'm sure that helped many of you out there. And if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe. It will help me get more great, amazing guests and content out to you in the very near future. So I will see you soon on the Pursuit of Happiness podcast.